Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhart. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, don't we have some exciting news? Oh my gosh, we do have some exciting news. We are announcing today that we're partnering up with our sponsor, S12F and Operation Foglift for a giveaway. This giveaway is a weekend in New York City. It will include round-trip airfare and hotel and tickets to see Reckoning with the Primal Wound on February 3rd, 2024. Yes, I said 2024. And a happy hour hosted by Adoption, the Making of Me, us, on Friday, February 2nd. We will announce the two random winners on our December 19th podcast live, as well as on all of our social media channels. So make sure to listen. Yes. So you can enter the contest by going to our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. Join our mailing list. We will also put this in the show notes to make it easy for you. So wherever you're listening to your podcast, you will see that in your show notes. We are so excited. Woohoo. See you in New York. If you missed our first ever fog lift in Nashville, don't worry, because New York City is shaping up to be even more incredible. You'll get to party with us on Friday night. Then watch the film Reckoning with the Primal Wound and my award-winning one-woman show, Unmothered, on Saturday in the iconic Berkeley College of Music's Power Station Theater. Aren't you offering an intimate writing session on Sunday too, Liz? Yeah, I'm offering a small workshop for anyone interested on Sunday. Tickets are now available, but space is limited, so please tell anyone you know who wants to listen to adoptees about their experience of adoption through the arts to come to Operation Foglift, New York City edition. Hi, listeners. I just wanted to remind you that if you join Patreon at the $10 level, you can join our monthly Zoom that's coming up. We'll be starting that at the end of November. We're excited to get started. Okay, back to our show. We'd like to take a moment here to say thank you to our sponsor and fellow adoptee, S12F, for his continual support. In today's episode, we are doing something a little bit different for the start of National Adoption Month. This month, as we know, rarely focuses on the voices of adoptees. We have an incredible guest coming on, Moses Farrow, and we would like to give ample time for this conversation. We will resume next week with The Baby Thief by Barbara Bizance Raymond. Stay tuned. Hello. Really excited to introduce today's guest. This is the first time we're meeting him. He was introduced through a fellow adoptee. So yeah, we're excited to have him. Please welcome Moses Farrow. He is coming from San Diego. Welcome, Moses. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for Really happy on. to have you. Yeah. It was very quick. We just emailed you and you're like, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we want to hear your story because you do a lot of great work and advocacy for adoptees. And that's probably why you also said, let's do it. So dig well, in how you want to get started. There's so much to share. There's so much to cover. There's so much to talk about. There's, as we were just saying, so much fog to be lifted. In fact, at this point, I very 
rarely talk about the fog. It's been replaced with the word truth. Mm-hmm. And so my journey has been pursuit of truth and seeking the truth and then speaking the truth. And like so many of us who are impacted by adoption, who have lived experience of adoption, go through this process, as we like to say, go through this journey. And where I I started off with my adoption story being found in a phone booth as an infant in Seoul, South Korea, and being dropped off at the Social Welfare Society, and then entering the adoption system, being placed in an orphanage and and being adopted when I was two, and then moving from South Korea to New York City, where I spent about the next 13 or 14 years. I consider myself a New Yorker at heart, even though I'm out here in the West Coast for the last few years at this point. And growing up, I was embracing the life I was adopted into. I was very much raised to follow directions and do as I was told, deathly afraid of being in trouble and getting into trouble and always being in trouble and always finding myself in trouble. <laughs> so Was it, that like a rebellious thing? For me, not so. No, no. I was doing the very best I could to just, you know, live as I thought I was living. And it took me many years later to recognize it was uh, more of a life of survival and surviving childhood abuse along with my siblings. And so I guess that's another piece of my story is uh, growing up in a very large household with 10 other adopted siblings and our mother having four of her own biologically. And so much of it was going to school and eating, sleeping, and doing those everyday kind of things. Yeah, just uh, seeing the years pass by and And I came into more of the adoption scene as an adult. Mm -hmm. And even after I became a therapist, even though I was working as a therapist, primarily in outpatient programs, I worked in an intensive outpatient program, and then in-home programs, community-based programs. So, So I was running through my career until about 10 years into it, I was picked up by an adoption agency that offered me to run a post-adoption resource center for them. Yeah, that would have been interesting. It opened up my world. Like, was that when you kind of went, oh, like hit the truth? Is that when that started coming to you? uh, Let me dial this back just a little bit. In grad school, much of my studies or much of the focus was on self as therapist. Mm-hmm. And my placement, my field placement, also focused on that. And the final remarks from my, from my field su- supervisor was wanting to see me on a path of self-discovery. And so... That's obviously something that, that, that I uh, have paid attention to and took to heart, along with a number of other messages along the way. But from there to accepting this position with uh, this adoption agency, where at the time saying, hey, I'm, I'm realizing a childhood dream of mine, which is to help other orphan children. That was a childhood dream of mine. More contextually to wanting to go back to South Korea and, and 
wanting to help my fellow crib mates, as some people like to refer ourselves to. So, but from that exposure, that experience where I was there for four years until they closed the program due to organizational restructuring. That was an invaluable eye-opening experience those four years. And I got to enter into this whole world of professional side of adoption, as well as lived experiences and, and hearing from other sides of the mm-hmm. the adoption constellation, I think is, is how we're referring to it. Mm-hmm. You're sort of seeing like all sides coming in. Like the were you hearing from adoptees and adopted parents? And the business side, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some from the birth parent side oh. and, and the birth mother side. At that time, I heard about it as the adoption triad. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I struggle with those terms. I don't like putting prefixes. Too much of it feels it's driven by the overarching industry. Mm-hmm. So... In that way, uh, go back to ask if I was rebellious uh, growing up. I feel like I, I've reclaimed this rebellious, nonconformist approach to the work I'm doing and wanting to dismantle a lot of the social constructs and the human-based constructs that prevent us from seeing the truth. Yeah. Well, I was thinking when you were saying, when Sarah asked if you were rebellious, it's more like you were just you trying to fit into something that's being told what you're, this is what we're doing. This is what, there's all these kids. We're going to be boom, boom, boom. We're going to, you know, you're just being you. And so. Did you get the feeling, because there's a lot of talk about this, that in the industry, and I don't know if it's changing or not, but certainly years ago when babies were considered blank slates, did you get Mm -hmm. the feeling that you were supposed to be a blank slate? When you came into the family you were adopted into, and I did not feel that way. I want to say that growing up, I was taking life as it came at me. There wasn't much critical thinking about myself so much, more more as how to react, how to not draw attention, and certainly not draw negative attention to myself. You know, so a lot of my attention was on my environment and what was happening outside of myself and less so about what was actually happening inside of me. I would say I have created a greater balance with that as I've gotten older. So I would say that, you know, if we put it back in the context of uh, the fog, you don't see the fog until it's pointed out to you or until you start putting things together for yourself. And I remember hearing Adam Pertman give his workshops or presentations and and research, finding your roots and wanting to re to go through searches and and reconnect with your families, that occurs later on in life as you get older. So the research done by Amanda Baden, where she concluded we need to help children come to their truths much younger. And that, I would say, is a better way of going about it. You know, why do we wait? We have those answers of why, but we should not be waiting 
until they're 18. We should not be waiting until the right time. We should not be waiting because of our own fears or our own hangups about wanting to be a family or wanting, you know, not wanting disruptions, you know, especially if there's already layers of challenges and struggles uh, already occurring. Uh, you know, why why add more to it when so much of the post-adoption experience is reducing a lot of that pain and trauma and disruption. So I now believe that we need to acknowledge that disruption when it occurs. And for all of us to be on the same page, this is what's happened to all of us, but certainly, you know, what's happened to the child and their mother and their family. And to recognize that, acknowledge that, recognize that the adopted life is on a track that's very much different than what I brought up to parents as a normal development. Mm -hmm. We do so much of the work on the back end, the healing and, Mm -hmm. you know, digging in years of therapy later, right? It should start earlier so you can be who you are. That's a good point. When you have an entire society that believes that there's nothing, that it's a wonderful thing, and it's pretty much a universal belief, it's mm-hmm. really hard to get everybody on board to absolutely tackle those things early. Absolutely. So bring the issues together with being blank slates and a world that has, over the generations, over the hundreds of years, accepted adoption as this celebrated way of saving children and creating families. It's important to add in there that the blank slate approach is a necessary part to the adoption process. And I'm just going to you know, continue to use these terms since I've put the disclaimer, I don't like using the terms. And if I remember, I'll, I'll explain why. But to further this point, the blank slate is a necessary part of the process. And birth mothers are told once you choose to give your child up for adoption, you can move on with the rest of your life and, and forget about them. And, yeah. and there is this process of erasure and forgetting and moving on and replacing all that with the celebration of being adopted and getting into a forever home and getting a new name, a new identity, a second chance at life or a better life. So on the back end, as you put it, we're trying to put all these pieces together in a world that really doesn't want us to, mm-hmm. that's organized not to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and much of our experience is about revealing the lies and deception and secrets and undoing many, many systems, again, going back to constructs that have kept it all in place for hundreds of years. And thankfully, there are more and more of us who are seeking the truth, who Mm -hmm. are coming out of their fogs and asking the questions and being curious enough and then brave enough to say, hey, there's something off. There's something not right. We're not the broken ones. We're not not the ones needing to be fixed. Oh, here's the point that we're not the square pegs trying to fit into the round holes. Mm -hmm. It actually isn't a process of trying to fit in or trying to find where we belong. That's really been my my experience as I'm virtually a globetrotter trying to find where I fit in. 
trying to find a place. And ultimately, what what does that mean? It means that that I'm trying to find a place where I feel safe. Yeah. Just to plant that seed and see if see if we might go down that that road. The blank slates, the secrets and deceptions and lies. I appreciate that you're bringing that into the conversation because that is so much of revealing the truth about what has been done to us in a system, in a construct, in a world that says, well, it's this, and all of our attention and effort and resources are being focused on fitting the square peg into a round hole when actually we're recognizing we are square pegs and that is a round hole and the two don't fit. And there was a square box somewhere that we don't fit into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The way that I frame that is these are not the lives we were born into and that the lives we are adopted into are actually alternate realities. Yeah. And if we take it a step further, these alternate realities, and I like using the reference back to the future part two, where Doc is at the chalkboard saying, you know, here's where we were in 1955. And then we jumped to the future. And because you took the sports almanac that Biff got his hand onto, he went back uh, to 1955 and created this alternate reality that we jumped into in this new future. But unfortunately, we don't have a time machine. We can't go back to the point of origin. And therefore, we can't get back onto the the life that we were born into. And we proceed as we think it is. This is our our reality, but it's an alternate reality. That's a I mean, great way of putting it. I've never mind thought like, of it that way. Yeah. And, and then we spend yeah. our lives searching for something that we don't even know. Since we're not talked to about it, then we're blindly searching in life, right. filling ourselves with many different things. You use the word safe, and I feel Sarah and myself, adoptees, we know we're always searching for where I feel comfortable at home, safe. That's such a thing that other people don't have that I talk to. It's interesting. It's hard to explain to someone who's not adopted because everyone has their things, right? But that safety feeling, you said you're globetrotting and where do you feel safe? It's it's the same. Like I feel unsafe often and it's a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. In my 50s, I should feel very not unsafe. You know, it's strange. Part of the constructs that tell us, well, this is how it should be. This is how we should be. This is how we should feel. Part of the undoing of all that is recognizing that actually not feeling safe is generated out of a mixed message that we have the power to be the change we want to see in the world. Yet we also tell ourselves, well, the world is an unsafe place. And it seems, you know, every every time you turn on the news, every time you go on uh, social media, you know, it's just like we're inundated, we're bombarded with this mixed message that as long as we surround ourselves with those who we do feel safe with, then at least we, we do feel safe. But we feel safe in unsafe world because there's still conflict happening. There's violence out there. Mm -hmm. There's wars out there. And we hear about this, you know, so we live with this internalized conflict of always wanting to seek safety. And 
that clashes with the fact that actually no, because there are people who are choosing to not be safe, to act violently against each other, to not treat each other mm-hmm. well. So how do we reconcile that contradiction, that paradox? So it's been important for me to connect with more universal truths, broader truths outside of the adopted experience, outside of this, I'm not safe because I'm not where I belong. I'm not among people who understand me. I'm not in an environment that's helping me understand myself, that continues to pathologize me, that continues to make me feel like I've done something wrong, make me feel like I'm not right because I'm not the one fitting in. I'm not you know, I'm the one who's taken out disruptor from the rest. So this feeling of not feeling safe is becoming a lot more universally talked about, I would say. And a lot of that had to do with this more recent trend or movement of being trauma-informed. And thankfully, we we had some leading voices that made it into more of a movement of recognizing we need to be more trauma-informed as a society. So with that, these days, there's a whole lot more talk about our mental health and a lot more about the problems we're all facing and finding strength and community in our vulnerability and sharing our stories in showing up more authentically and not wanting to put on so many masks and pretenses. And so it's very slow moving, but there are movements happening. There's multiple movements happening simultaneously that is getting all of us to question so much more and turn inward about, well, how are we making sense of things? How do we want to make sense of things? And how how do we want to show up in the world? So that has been very important for me to put all of those together. So when I'm out there talking about suicide and adoption, and there's really only been two studies from 2013, 10 years ago, a decade ago, that have pointed out that adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide, and not just attempt, but die by suicide. I did not and, realize there's only been two studies yeah, that's what I was gonna and say. nothing in 10 years. Well, two that are that are most spoken about, two mm-hmm. that are highlighted as the two that are referenced most often. There may be others, and I would be very open to the hearing if there are others, but there's one that was done in the US and there's one that was done in Sweden. And some other outcomes that have been reported on are adoptees are twice as likely to struggle with addiction and depression and mental health issues. I have referenced the presentation that Nicole Shepard had done at a conference, I think it was in 2018 or so, that was recorded and, and published on YouTube. She broke down the outcomes of those studies. So that's out there. We should put that in our show notes. I was just thinking the same thing. Mm -hmm. So going back to the point, there are only those two studies. 
which for me, I then paid more attention to the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, and their outcomes indicated that with chronic stress and having four or more adverse childhood experiences increases one's risk of attempting suicide by 1,220%. So that's 1,220% increase risk of attempting suicide if you have four or more adverse childhood experiences. Understanding now that adoption certainly has a lot more than just traumatic loss or relinquishment or abandonment or, you know, one event or one instance of being mistreated or neglected or, right? So it's very easy to reach those four adverse childhood experiences. Very quickly. So not only do we have the four times more likely, we now have the 1,220% more likely. Unreal. What sobering statistics those are. Really cold water in the face to hear that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about the 1,200. I'd heard the four times. Mm -hmm. We cite that Mm -hmm. often, but wow, that Mm -hmm. is. I'm going to keep going with this. That again, with my own journey and my own learning about this, I then learned about the research and the outcome studies that the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention does each year. So they report on the number of attempted suicides, as well as the number of deaths by suicide, and where suicide falls in the leading cause of death in in the US. So it has hovered around being the 10th leading cause of death, the 11th leading cause or the 12th leading cause of death for Americans. Off the top of my head, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's certainly over a million attempts per year by Americans. It's hovering around 48,000 deaths by suicide. Now, I want to take a moment and actually look this up. So bear with me because I want to recognize each number counted because each number counted is a human life. And we do like to say that all of us count, all of us Mm -hmm. matter. So I don't want to leave any of those deaths out. From there, we have the four times more likely, the 1,220% more likely or higher risk. We have the million plus attempts. We have the 48,000 plus deaths by suicide. This is yearly. Annual. Annual. And we know roughly there's about 7 million adopted people in the US. So that got me asking the questions, well, how many of those attempts are by adopted people? are coming from our side of the population. How many of those deaths are of adopted people, are of people in our community? And, you know, who is actually looking at that? Is somebody doing that? No. No. So this is because it's in part that we're not seen as a population in of ourselves. We're not seen as a marginalized group 
We're not classification, in other words. That's been something that we really, I think, came into this learning is that we're a group that's had trauma that no one considers a group that's had trauma. That's why there's no studies that are, you know, there's studies, well, but very because few. Because it, it mm-hmm. challenges the yeah. narrative of adoption being a wonderful thing. So yeah. keeping the, the lid on it. It goes back to your point that we're blank slates. We're less than human. And I'm going to stare in that direction. Since this is a bit of a springboard from, we have actual outcomes, anecdotal data, if you will, from our lived experiences and our stories and memoirs and books and podcasts and blogs and videos and and films and all of this saying, look what is happening to us. Look what has been done to us over the decades. And each year for National Adoption Month, which is next month, the presidential proclamation centers itself primarily around having more adoptions and finding loving forever homes for children in need who are in state care. So we're understanding that this is impacting negatively because there is abuse happening in in the foster care system. Yeah. Because there is abuse happening in post-adoption placements as well. And a lot of what I've been bringing up lately, and I'm going to say lately in the last three or four years, is the fact that adoptions are coming out of forced separations, removals, kidnapping, child abductions. I mean, systematic campaigns, recruitment efforts, tactics that target certain women and mothers and sectors of our population that are most vulnerable and most in need. And with the overarching message that we need to help these children by adopting them into loving and forever homes. A lot of this is driven too by an evangelical movement as well. I mean, that's a very, very prominent in this country, driving the narrative, continuing the practices. Sinister. I'm going to follow you down that path. Thank you for bringing that up, Sarah. It's not a path I typically take, but it certainly does exist and certainly does need to be talked about more. So thank you for opening that up. That if we look back into the history, again, over the hundreds of years of what we consider to be modern day adoption, that much of the origins had to do with creating a child labor force and human trafficking and slavery. And that came out of the point in history where it was colonization and one set of people conquering another and seeking to dominate. And then once they did the conquering, they needed to rebuild the economy. They needed to rebuild the way of life and civilization. And in time, they realized that children are half the size of adults and they're easier to control and easier to enslave, really, to to build a labor force. So one such scheme is the child migration scheme that came out of the UK 
where they used both of these terms that are still being used today. It's in their best interest because it gives them a better life. And a better life means a home and education and well-being. And so not only were they taking orphans, but they were orphaning. I'm going to make that into a verb. They were orphaning children. They were actually removing them out of their current homes and their current families with their current parents. And the promise to their current parents where this is in their best interest because you're destitute, you're not able to sustain your home and raising these children. So let's take them and put them in homes on the other side of the world where they'll be fed, they'll be educated, they'll have a roof over their head. So the same promises are being made today that were being used, you know, Mm -hmm. way back. It's the same verbiage. The exact same verbiage. So let's capture a real scenario here. Well, shall we say another real scenario here in the States, that when the States were being colonized and the indigenous people here were being forced into their own territories and then their territories being cut back more and more over the years. At one point, the missionaries were saying, well, let's create boarding schools for them, right? Let's assimilate them that way until abuse and corruption started coming out of these boarding schools. The next solution was adoption. Forget putting them into these boarding schools where we need to find, you know, finance and keep on top of, and let's just put them directly into our homes, Christianize them. We had on a guest, Chris Stearns was on our podcast, who's mm-hmm. uh, Navajo, mm-hmm. went through that and was highlighted in a okay. article by Gabriel Glazer for the Times about it. And right around the time that the Indian Welfare Act was up mm-hmm. for debate mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. last year mm-hmm. in the yeah. Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Terrific, really. It's not not that long ago. Things are still coming to light every day, aren't they? To continue to go down this path, there continues to be uncovering of mass graves, right? Unmarked graves of children, yeah. no less. In Canada yeah. too. In Canada, as well as Ireland. I was just going to say Ireland, um, yeah, and I believe also the UK. So the uncovering of mass graves, unmarked graves. Children mm-hmm. were in the hundreds. It is gruesome. I mean, and overall, for me, it's dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us, it's unconscionable mm-hmm. for those who are directly impacted, you know, for the families who have lost those children, for the parents mm-hmm. who have lost those children, who may not even know what, what happened. So devastating you know, complete devastation on that level. And for for the rest of us, it's dehumanizing. It adds to the sense where our dignity, our humanity Mm -hmm. is removed. We We don't matter. Right. We We talk about often how you can just literally, depending on when you're adopted, where you're adopted, you were in a phone booth in Seoul. I was in Colorado. Sarah was in Missouri. Whoever came to get you is what your life was. Whatever home you just went into. It was a toss of, yeah, it could have been, the next day it could have been an entirely different family. I mean, 
no matter what, we're square pegs. No, wherever we're going to go, it's going to be a round hole. Mm-hmm. So that becomes our life is to be in this continuous state of figuring out who I am, where do I belong, where do I fit in. I'm glad that you're bringing this kind of back around because without a model of how to live and how to be, we use the existing models. And what we're so many of us are finding is that the existing models don't apply to us. They don't fit. And even though you grew up in a happy, healthy home with good people and have had that positive experience, that's great. It's later on in life that other things, as you mentioned, the body keeps a score, come up. Mm-hmm. That energy has to be realized in some way, somehow. So whether it comes up with not being satisfied in your job and your career, with your coworkers and those relationships, or finding yourself bouncing from one relationship to the next. Yeah, intimacy is a big thing. Recreating the loss, recreating the abandonment, and so on and so forth. It can also come up in disease of the body. Talking about studies that don't exist, I would be curious, you know, to see how many adopted people have an autoimmune disease, because that is definitely a place where it manifests, you know, that trauma and grief and loss, and you can't express that or you don't have the understanding of it until many years later when it's kind of too late and your body's already taken all that stuff on. Sleep disorders, all of it. I mean, it's- And that's where the adverse childhood experiences study and expanding your seeking of truth is seeing that there's other u- universal truths out there that help you put the piece together. Can you speak a little bit to the universal truths that you're talking about, sort of, in the context of that? Part of the journey, part of coming out of the fog, part of the truth is recognizing that, for me, I say there's such a thing as adoption trauma. This has been talked about, thankfully, much, much more so in recent years. People asking the question that is adoption trauma, for me, uh, I want to say we need to identify it. We need to call it adoption trauma. Say what it is. Call it for what it is. Thank you. So the universal truths where the rest of the world is now caught up to, oh, trauma is is a public health issue or after childhood experiences is a public health crisis that many, many, many more of us are affected by what happened to us in our childhood by this overarching experience and re-experience of, of trauma. So where the adoption is a piece of that, that overarching truth that is being more universally accepted is becoming more of a universal truth that pain and suffering is part of the human condition in any time in history. And part of it is self-inflicted, where we self-sabotage and we self-destruct. And the other part is because that is part of life. That is part of the natural order of things, that we fit into a larger ecosystem, if you will. And there are laws in nature that say there is a pecking order. There is a way this is all balanced. 
and why life has existed for millions and millions of years. Yeah. By expanding our view beyond the adoption community, the adoption perspective, and being able to draw from other universal truths and, and, and saying, oh, oh, okay, yes, this is how it's all make, making sense for, for me now. So at this point, for me, with my lived experience, the losses that I've felt in my life with my siblings, with suicide, suicide loss, my own suicidality. And this is something that Paul Sutherland speaks to in his lectures and presentations. And thankfully, I think he still lends his voice is that it is life or death. It is life-threatening that we are caught up in this catastrophic thinking, which does keep us locked in this black and white, all or nothing, life and death scenario. Because when we put all the pieces together and it's not, oh, just me in my life and I have a roof for my head, I have clothes on my back, I have food on the table, I have a job, I have income, I have, you know, I have all these things. Why do I still feel like it's a life and death situation when I get triggered by this or that and the other? Yeah. It is recognizing that the overarching experience or the overarching thing that has been done to us that continues to be done to us it goes back to exactly what we were saying to the indigenous people the unmarked graves the the fact that there are child labor forces out there based on these promises of adoption it's out there among all the other mixed messages we're getting from the world it's safe unsafe that at any point well if it's being done to them in that home or in that state or on that side of the world, it could happen to me, couldn't it? That again, there is this fine line or, or, or message of, well, you have control, but there's only so much you have control over. Right. As long as I continue doing the things I'm doing and playing it safe for me, but then in other parts of the country and the world and our communities, things are upended just like that. Yeah. We have so little control. (laughs) I have a question. You are a therapist. And so by nature of that, you are a healer. What do you do to heal yourself? Mm, Do you feel you're healing? Is anyone ever healed? But I mean, what do you do for yourself? Good question. I appreciate you connecting the two, being a therapist and being a healer, where for me, I say the two are not synonymous. And that is an unfortunate truth that not every therapist is a healer, not every healer is a therapist. And I certainly don't want to put that responsibility on myself to be a healer of others. It's why I define myself, I identify myself more as an educator at this point. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the distinction. Thank you for asking this question. That I find with the clients that I do work with these days, that do want to work with me, I should put it more that way. I find myself doing more educating and providing insights or providing awareness and information rather than therapy. And what I found 
what those of us who are seeking therapy are finding supportive spaces, supportive people, information education to be therapeutic in of itself. Yeah. So seeking and searching and learning and taking in, it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because I certainly have gone down many rabbit holes, gone down many paths, I spent many, many hours exploring and doing that, and then finding myself very much triggered and very much activated and very much dysregulated yeah. in the the minutes, hours, and days, and weeks you know, following a revelation or following a breakthrough. So much of my attention has steered towards understanding the physiology, the neuroscience, the connections of the many layers of feeling safe. Mm-hmm. So feeling safe within myself, feeling safe with my own body, the more connected I, I am internally, the more self-aware I am, the safer I feel with myself. And going back to the illusion of control yeah. is the more I know about myself, the more I feel like, okay, I have control over how I react to this or how I mm. respond to that or how I want to mm-hmm. react and respond to things outside of myself. And even, you know, things going on within my, my thoughts, my feelings, yeah. the way I sense things. And I've gotten into many conversations with people, how they're in a state of dissociation. They're completely out of touch with themselves. They don't know how to feel. They don't know what is happening. They don't even recognize anything is happening. And I think more attention needs to be on how we are actively being taught to be in a state of dissociation, Mm -hmm. to not be in touch with ourselves. Because we're actively being told, well, this is how you should be. This is how you should behave. This mm-hmm. is how you should look look and feel. And mm. so we're being given model. Again, we're being given models of how to be because we're seen as blank slates to mm-hmm. be filled up with, this is how you should identify yourself now. This is right. So we are being actively taught to dissociate. While you're speaking, it gives me feeling of many adoptees we interview and myself included. I won't speak for Sarah, but it's almost like giving yourself permission to have the boundary of, I don't want to do that. That's not comfortable because so many of us are pleasers and, and keep mm-hmm. trying to keep up with the world you're in. Right. I mean, like anybody, but at another level. And it, it's very, there's something about coming into it to be like, you know, I'm not comfortable with that, or that's not okay for me. Or I need to slow down. That's kind of a permission. I don't, you're not saying permission, but I'm feeling a little bit like for me, it's that having that, you know, grace for yourself too, to say, okay, I'm down this rabbit hole and boy, this is it. I need to back out for a minute. And it's a lot. Thank you for bringing that up and certainly take it how you will. Being given permission is a piece of this coming out of the fog Mm -hmm. uh, Uh and finding your truth. And you know, because people do sit on their truths, but they don't speak it because they don't want to rock the boat because they yes. don't, you know, they don't. it's not safe well, to rock the boat. It's not safe. Because it's not safe. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Sarah. So, and this is a fine line that we walk and I walk as a therapist. I don't want to be caught blaming the victim 
saying, well, you're causing this yourself. Well, so I want to take a few steps back now that we've made this point that you come to a point in your journey, you come to a point in your truth that something has been done to me. A little bit of that fog has been lifted. What do I do with that? And before that, we need to recognize, oh, something has been done to us. This is why I'm not feeling myself or out of phase, shall we say. We look the part, we speak the part, we walk the part, you know, we're doing all, all the motions. Yeah. But we're still left feeling with this imposter syndrome mm-hmm. type of thing, imposters in our own lives. So taking a step back in order to be able to give yourself permission, it requires you to be at a level of awareness. It requires mm-hmm. you to accept that, oh, this isn't life as usual. You know, if I just do A, B, C, and D like everybody else is, because I want to be normal, I want to be like everyone else. I don't want to be different. I don't want to stand out. Mm-hmm. I want to blend in. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be a disruptor. So that's where taking that step back and recognizing, oh, things aren't lining up, things aren't adding up, things aren't aren't mm-hmm. fitting in. And you're in a system now in a different place because it's like, oh, I was playing this part because that's all I knew. Mm-hmm. But now I know it was playing a part. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing it from, you know, now I'm over here. Do I continue to play the part? Yeah. And pretend and secretly find a community of others where I could be myself and say, hey, I, I know what's up. I know the gig. <laughs> like knowing the puppet show mm-hmm. that behind the puppeteer, right? It's mm-hmm. like- you're pulling back the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And saying, oh, thank goodness, there's more of us behind the curtain, you know, or there's more of us pulling back the curtain. And we're all saying, we know what's up and we know what's going on. And we're finding each other and we're coming together and we're sharing our stories and, and validating all of it, which is great, you know. And at this point, there's only thousands of us, I think, who are at that point. And maybe, maybe thousands of us, maybe, you know, just hundreds of us who are then giving ourselves permission to say, yeah, I'm not okay with this. And whether it's in your everyday life or whether it's in the larger advocacy spaces or the larger activism spaces of of saying, yeah, thankfully there are communities of advocates and activists who are finding ways to join their voices together and saying, yeah, we know what's up and this is not okay. And as you pointed out, thankfully people have written about this for decades. People have been blowing the whistle for for mm-hmm. decades and this is a very slow moving movement very slow moving because yeah. you know we talk about this all the time it's in terms of policy and state laws and privacy laws and all that stuff they're all on the same page together this is a wonderful thing it should stay the way it is so these hundreds of voices it's going to be a slow moving it's slow moving but it's moving yeah i was going to say two things before we need to start thinking about wrapping up. But we are so, I was realizing how objectified we are, right? As a group of marginalized people, we are objectified. And I I got the other day when I was getting, finally got all my adoption records and with a fight with the state to get them and all this stuff. But I got all my unredacted records. But in the midst of all this, I got 
an email chain. Somehow one of the social workers forwarded it to me and I looked through the thread and all throughout the thread between the two social workers, they kept referring to me as the AA, the adult adoptee. So I was just so even objectified in that as a, you know, middle-aged person who's, I had to prove my send obituaries of my birth parents before I could get the records just, you know, but it really highlighted how objectified we are fetishized in some way too, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. So in the interest of time, and I, you know, I'm like, oh, already? I know. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just barely scratching the surface here. <laughs> so can I take four deep dives? Yeah. Please do. Okay. In terms of being objectified, tying it back to blank slates, tying it back to the cover-up of kidnapping and trafficking and modern slavery, really. What's happening in South Korea, right, from the Forgotten War is how they like to refer to that. Yeah. Where, okay, then you have the Holt family partnering up with South Korea. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the Comfort Women, and then running out of orphans to then taking other people's children. And we'll just steal them. And marketing them off as we have more orphans to adopt out, right? Fast forward to a documentary by Dion Borges Liam, Geographies of Kinship, that took a deep dive into that history with South Korea and the Holt family. And, and I believe it was 1989, don't hold me to this, but where the president of South Korea at that time gathered 29 Korean adoptees and made a public apology mm -hmm. and statement that this was wrong and we should not continue doing this. Well, fast forward to the last year or so with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that are now diving into hundreds of cases, primarily, I believe, from Holt, revealing that falsified documents and cause for lawsuits against Holt, against adoption agencies, against the South Korean government even. And I'm going to say, you know, this is history in a way repeating itself yes. rather than feeling like, well, this is progress because falsified documents and human rights violations, uh, I mean, have been kicking around for decades, for generations yeah. even. It's interesting yeah. you brought up Holt because that's how Gabrielle Glazer came into being an advocate for adoptees and writing mm. American Baby was originally, mm. she was doing something with getting into that whole exposure. And mm. she talked to us about that and that letter to the next, to the next, to being aware. Mm. She said she's going to look back into what's going on. There's, like you said, repeating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my best to kind of tie this all together, but history repeating itself rather than actually making progress. And this is going to the heart of my ongoing concern and my ongoing mission and how I've tied in my lived experience with saying, well, this is something we all need to get on board with. This is something we all need to get on with educating ourselves with, you know, as you put it, Sarah, healing ourselves or dismantling all of this that has kept us in the fog, so to speak. So, Part of this objectification was a smaller movement within the larger movement, headed up by other more present-day Korean adoptees in the outset of the death of Korean infant adoptee, 
Zhang En, who was 16 months old, who was murdered by the adoptive parents, the folks who adopted her, right? Hundreds of counts of abuse leading up to that murder, right? Revealed. And again, the former president at the time made the statement focused primarily on the prospective or, you know, pre-adoptive parents or adoptive parents saying, if it's not a good match, if it's not working out, you could return the child oh get my an- God. and get another one, right? So that's like, you know- You can shop and return. Much more recent, right? Much more recent account of that. And so this smaller movement, we all did a hashtag, I'm not a thing, you know, with many, many layers of of messages saying that we are human beings. These are human rights violations. We should not be left for abuse and being murdered. And, you know, all these messages, the messages being that we are human beings. We're people. We're not objects. We're not things to be bought and sold and exchanged and returned and rehomed mm-hmm. and you know, all the things that we're saying, right? So ultimately, not commodified. We're not commodities. Mm-hmm. We're not products, right? In an industry that on one side of the argument or one side of the conversation, it's so easy to talk about the cost of adoption and how the government is working so diligently for decades on how to reinforce and fortify the adoption tax credit and make it more affordable to adopt and breaking down all the barriers and obstacles and challenges to make adoption successful. So, that's where so many of the conversations are about the cost of adoption. Mm-hmm. But that's in the context of adoption, as opposed to human trafficking, as opposed right. to the cost of buying and selling people, which it's a crime around the world, yeah. right? And in order for that crime to be committed, you need to dehumanize and objectify and mm-hmm. commodify those human lives into commodities and products to be bought and sold. But it's at the heart of both conversations, whereas on the adoption side, no, 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 we're trying to reduce the cost and we're trying to make it more affordable and we're trying to make it easier to adopt. Whereas on the human trafficking side, it's like, no, no, no. Any amount of buying somebody is a crime, right? You don't put a price tag on a human being, on a human life. Until you do. So. Until they do. I mean. Yeah. So. There is a through line here that the whole world is standing on, you know, where if it's for adoption, buying and selling people is okay, and we should make it more affordable. But if it's not about adoption, then it's a crime. And with what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, it's considered to be a war crime. War yeah. Well, it's like what I mean, Only different Supreme Court, but- right? Human domestic supply of adoptees. Of a de- infants, mm-hmm. the domestic supply, supply of infants. Yeah, mm-hmm. of infants, right, right in their yeah. own it's, language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So the third point, I guess, I'm going back to the labels of AA, adult adoptee, of mm-hmm. birth, birth parents, adoptive parents, APs. So for me, why I struggle with this language and no longer accepting of it is because I've dismantled it. It is about keeping up the industry and placing it on the adoption side rather than the other side. Even having the labels has the, keeps mm-hmm. the construct going. Keeps up 
the construct that this is about adoption. So adoptee, mm-hmm. AA, adoptive parent, adoptive homes, foster homes, the whole bit mm-hmm. keeps it about, well, it's in the best interest of the child. It's child protection, it's child welfare, it's creating forever family homes. Right? So that's okay, that's acceptable, that's legal, that's lawful, right? as opposed to the other side. So keeping it about adoption is doing us a disservice. It's actually counterproductive. It's actually counteracting all the advocacy and activism that we're trying to do. And that's what's slowing this whole movement down. Mm. What a great point, Moses. That's really, you're kind of blowing my mind. And I (laughs) actually looked at it in that way. And wow, that's kind of a, one of those moments that I'm having, like, wow, yeah. I hadn't ever thought about that. On a dime. <laughs> brilliant way to look at it and to articulate it. And mm. I got to chew on that. That's really. Yeah. By keeping up appearances, by keeping up the language, by labeling ourselves, we're essentially branding ourselves. We yeah, are. Right. What should the language be? Yeah. What's question? another way to go forward? Yeah. I have a family. I have a mother. I have parents who are out there, you know, who are Korean. Mm-hmm. I don't need to identify them as birth natural. Mother, first You're birth. right. Na- yeah. Natural first birth. All of that feeds into this construct of there is an industry that tells us you're this now and not that now. And it's so awkward to use. You know what I mean? Even when we use it, I'm like, it feels awkward to say, mm-hmm. you know? Like Linda was my mother who gave me up for adoption. And I'd like to say Linda, not birth mother. It's an awkward. I mean, you're right. When you're saying it's like what Sarah's saying, it's like mind blowing in a way. Like, whoa. So I'm going to take it a step further. Mm -hmm. See if this also blows your mind or maybe, you know, totally makes it explode. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I might need coffee for that. I have deconstructed further where especially in the U.S., we have made placement synonymous with homes. We've made foster care synonymous with foster parents, Mm. right? And this has come out of a number of conversations with Peter, who runs Adoptee Rights Australia. And he identifies himself as a foster carer, not a foster parent. So through care, like I'm taking care, it's care business right now. It's care. Exactly. I'm caring for someone else's child. I'm caring and I'm helping to raise them up. So that's where I'm making a distinction between the title noun of parent versus the verb parenting. The difference between calling yourself a parent versus the act of raising a child. And so when we no longer blur these lines, we understand that this is, again, not about a business of creating homes and forever families. This is a for-profit business. This is a Mm -hmm. for-profit industry Mm -hmm. of transactions. And as long as we complete the transaction, we don't care what happens afterwards. That, you know, that's where going way back to the beginning of the conversation, there's no research, there's no funding for anecdotal or qualitative outcomes. They just want to know the numbers, how many adoptions are happening, where, between who, what demographics. And so they know where the market is and you know what the trends are, right? 
that's all about keeping up an industry. So bring it to my fifth point. <laughs> I think it's fourth. <laughs> fourth. <laughs> there is an overall reduction in intercountry adoption. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, because yeah. there there have been efforts in Australia, in European countries, thanks to, you know, I would say a handful of advocates and activists who are outspoken and willing to put themselves on the line. But what has that done in the global industry, in the global adoption industry, right? It's putting more pressure on domestic adoptions. Mm-hmm. It's putting more pressure on the foster care side of adoptions. Where going back through the US history, at one point it was no, children in foster care should not be adopted. And then no, actually children should be adopted for foster care. You know, that is okay. That is now, you know, it's like the same thing with open adoption. It's like readily accepted, you know. Yeah. It's part of the many ways adoption's happening. Because that's the overall trend is the adoption industry is shrinking. So anything and everything is good. Anything and everything is okay, you know. Open, closed, foster care to adopt, uh, you know, like they're opening up all the gates. Baby boxes are okay. Yeah, know, baby, like, boxes. baby boxes. Jesus. Like all of it's okay because the industry is feeling itself getting shrunk. Right. And a large part of that is because intercountry adoptions have decreased mm-hmm. I mean, where it was in the tens of thousands, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s. Right to barely a thousand or in the thousands or even in the hundreds, you know. So industry trends wise, conventional adoption is gradually, and this is why, again, here's another factor why the movement is so slow, is that new markets need to come into their own. New markets need to be found. New markets need to be created. Mm. So where conventional adoptions have been decreased, this means there's an increase in donor conception adoptions, embryo mm-hmm. adoptions, surrogacy adoptions, mm-hmm. right? Where surrogacy itself is also coming out with different types of surrogacy, you know, where there's a altruistic surrogacy done not for profit. And in some countries where commercial surrogacy is outlawed because they don't want that for-profit aspect to it, right? They can't reconcile. Mm-hmm. There's still an exchange of money for a life here. But surrogacy, according to the Global Economic Insights report, it is a $14 billion industry wow. worldwide. And where, again, traditional or conventional adoption is roughly around that, $14, $20 billion, yeah. you, know, you know. Again, I don't think that there's any hard number being captured here. So, but roughly around that. By 2032, the projection is surrogacy is going to be a $129 billion industry. Wow. So, in the next decade, mm-hmm. essentially. So, we're, we're having a whole another group of young children come in, whole new set of, same set of problems, whole new set of problems. I mean, it's to hear it like this, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting to hear the business side of this like what you're saying wow limiting this creates the need for this Mm -hmm. so we need to look at those trends industry trends right Mm -hmm. but the laws of policies aspect no longer are going to apply so all this advocacy and all all of this work that we're doing to open up records to gain access all the human rights campaigns that we're putting out there 
are not going to apply to surrogate adoptions, aren't going to apply to embryo adoptions, right? Mm -hmm. That they're building out their own set of policies, laws, and regulations. And when, when those, wow. you know, embryos become adults and start having these thoughts and truths, seeking their universal truth, then there's going to be a whole other set of activists and advocacy for that world. I wonder if they're going to be called EAs. Kind of, right. Yes. <laughs> I, I I know somebody who yeah. had adopted an embryo. Mm -hmm. Boy, we could talk all day, Moses. This has been <laughs> one of the more enlightening conversations. Maybe ever. Yeah. It's really at the heart of what I'm about these days, you know. In, no, I, I love it. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you. Was, I feel honored that you're here with us to share this. I think it's so important for so many people that are going to be listening. Thank you for having me here and thank you for opening up the conversation and really helping to get into the different rabbit holes, the different things. I mean, really, I could do this all day. I think it's I know. just so interesting and it's such a higher level of looking at it. And I appreciate your brilliance on the topic and your... And can we keep the conversation going? Like maybe you could come back too as we go forward and oh. things progress and... Because hmm. I think this is, like you said, it's education. This is yeah. An you're an educator, educational experience. I mean, isn't that how it goes? We're we're all still on this journey. Yeah, we're yes. all still uncovering and pulling back more and more curtains. And Every day, it's like my mind. Mm -hmm. You know. So I appreciate that you've invited me here to be able to talk about these things and shed light. And I appreciate how you've received it. And had those aha moments or cognitive dissonance even, but being accepting that this is a necessary conversation and that it is a necessary ongoing conversation. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Moses. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Nice Thank to you. meet you. So nice to meet yeah. you. We'll see you soon. We're going to do this again. I look forward to it. Thank you. Okay, that is... My mind is blown. Uh, what a conversation. There's so much to process and unpack with that conversation. Just, he's wonderful. What a brilliant, brilliant mm -hmm. mind and a way of looking at things that had not even occurred to me. And Same. yeah. You know, and one thing he said off camera to you and I that I'd like to say is he did say there's a lot of people who have done this work for many years. Yes. That paved the, that has paved the, paved the way. way. Yeah. And yeah. I think you wanted to kind of put that in there. So that's. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad. I feel like we yeah. need to wrap it up because it's so. <laughs> yeah. He wraps it up. He wrapped it up. Yeah. Well, so, well, what do we say? We say and, it's another great episode. And it really was another great episode. It was. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. Bye.